The show of support from you, our valued listeners, has been overwhelming. You've already raised enough to pay for most of this year's worth of episodes. If you can afford a little something, please click the link to the GoFundMe in the show description. Thank you so very much. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Brooks Long to discuss the autobiography of Betty LeVette, co-written by David Ritz. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and tonight we're joined again by Brooks Long, which means the David Ritz Book Club continues. Tonight, it's Betty Levette, A Woman Like Me, her autobiography written with the help of the estimable Mr. David Ritz. Brooks, thanks so much for picking this one. I would not have picked this. And Betty is my jam. I really identify with Betty. Yeah, yeah. I I knew when uh, when we were looking through the the David Ritz list that eventually we had to get to her. We've talked a lot about folks that that uh, you know had big success the way that we usually see them you know, 20 years old or something like that. We've also talked about like Jerry Wexler and things like that. Um, And we just talked about uh, Rick James, who took about maybe a decade longer than you would have thought for him to really pop. But but, uh, Betty put in a little more time than that, probably about three decades long. Or, or maybe even longer uh, to to really get where she was going. But in the meantime, while she was getting there, there's just so much history that that she moves through, um, and it's really um, interesting in that way. And it's also interesting to just see what uh, you know a regular working stiff musician's life is like as they're you know trying to get somewhere for decades yeah it's rough i mean you know the, the basic who is betty levette because i didn't know until you know i'd seen her name on the list and then i looked her up but it wasn't until I, I realized that david ritz who had written a book about her that i i looked her up but you know five six years ago i didn't even know who david ritz was so um you know here we are but but betty levette was a woman born in detroit 1946 had a top 10 R&B hit on Atlantic Records when she was 16 years old, which 
didn't work out that well for her in the long run. Yeah. And she had a couple more minor R&B hits in the 60s, had multiple albums recorded in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, right at that sweet spot, you know, following in the wake of Aretha Franklin and, and uh, Etta James and others. She's taping with the Memphis Flyers at Memphis. She's taping with the Swampers and Muscle Shoals albums on multiple labels. Um, Kenny Leland Rogers, Kenny Rogers Brothers label. It wasn't, yeah, it was his label. And then Atlantic, a whole album on Atlantic and never released. Uh, then she had a disco hit, minor disco hit, um, but pretty legendary one. And um, then she had a long cold spell. Then in the 90s, she starts this comeback. And by the 2000s, she's singing at the Kennedy Center. She's winning or getting nominated for Grammys. She has a string of extremely well-regarded uh, albums that, that performed quite well. She made a nice living on the touring circuit. So it's a happy ending, yeah. but a long way to get there. And Betty, the, it's also a tale of work and self-improvement and taking care of yourself. I mean, she knew David Ruffin before he was David Ruffin, and she watched him sadly pass. And she she liked to party, and she drops the dirt. I mean, Betty doesn't <laughs> care. <laughs> no. no, this is very similar to to the Etta James uh, biography in that she's just going for it. And <laughs> yeah, and she's much more bitter than Etta James ever was. Yes. I mean, Etta was her own worst enemy. Betty was basically up against all of Motown. <laughs> yeah, all of Motown, all these different producers and uh, record label people who, you know, loved her singing voice as they should and promised her the world. And just when things seemed to be turning around, she yeah, something would always happen and they just couldn't put it out. It just, it happens over and over again in this book. And it's like, how did this woman keep it going? Well, she kept it going because she really knew who she was. She, she is <laughs> a diva, just like every, all the other ones that, that we know about. And she knew it and everybody who knew her knew it. She just needed the world to know her. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's two things that jumped out at me really early on. The first was the dedication to Jim Lewis, who she calls a star maker. Yeah. No idea who Jim Lewis was. So, you know, the book will tell you plenty about that and we'll talk about that. But Jim Lewis is the guy who took her under his wing. And and she's very open about the nature of her relationships with men. Yes. And they were frequently transactional frequently she slept with men who thought she could, who she thought could advance her career and she's totally up front that that was the norm at the time that's just how the game was played and she was playing the game and she liked sleeping with men so you know it worked out <laughs> but except when it didn't and the intro is one of these it's like a tv movie of the week where they start with the most dramatic crazy violent scene and it starts with her taking a beating from a pimp she had fallen into the clutches of a pimp uh, at a very young age in new york city and he ends up did he hang her out the window or just threaten to hang he did hang her out the window he did he did yeah i mean you know and she walked away from that 
with her head high. I mean, she she got herself out of that situation and got free of that gorilla. And 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 I and that's not a racial thing. That's a reference to a style of pimping, and yeah. the gorilla pimp who who you know dominates with his fists. And she got away from that monster and and just kept on going. So it's. It's an inspiring tale. Thank you very much for picking it. Let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is a song that started it all for Betty. This is My Man is a Loving Man, 1962. Probably released early 63, actually. My Man is a Loving Man, which came out on Atlantic Records in late 62, early 63, goes, I believe, to number seven R&B uh, in 63. Great start, slinky song. I think if you listen to it in the context of what else was on the R&B charts that year, it's not retro or nothing. It's, it. I mean, to me, it sounds like the hello card from somebody who's going places, and she just didn't. What's your take on that tune? Oh man! Well, there's so many things that I th- I think about. I mean, she does not sound her age, which was 15. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's it is quite remarkable that she was she was one of these uh, precocious kids, a lot like uh, Esther Phillips was, little Esther at the time. And uh, I, I think Gladys Knight was was one of those kids. And you know we've. We've also talked about like Aretha, who also lived in in Detroit. Aretha Franklin, who yep. also yep. Uh, lived she in Detroit Aretha. with her. Yeah, yeah, and they they get to be friends. Um, one thing that I think really strikes me is that Betty really she is absolutely one hundred percent a soul singer and but is is also really uh, versatile but she's got a real rock and roll grit like a like a Tina Turner or a Betty Davis honestly the person that i think of the most uh when when i think of like her phrasing plus the gritty voice i i really think of uh uh billy holiday and Holland wolf <laughs> <laughs> I really that's just combination. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I can see that. She really had something and she had it when she was 15 years old. (laughs) She did indeed. She did indeed. But this uh, Jim Lewis cat ends up mentoring her and really instilled some values in her that enabled her to continue to grow artistically throughout this entire arduous period. I mean, most people give up long before this, but Betty kept working and growing and listening and, and widening her, her set of influences and also going deep on key influences. And by the time she finally got her break, she was in shape. 
She was in good voice, amazingly good voice for somebody who sings this all out. Oh, yeah. And, and she had developed as an artist such that she was able to do a string of really creative interpretive singer albums, which is hard to do. I mean, you got to find the material. And she ends up marrying a guy who basically becomes her A&R man. And, and you know, the, the kind of guy who goes through hundreds of songs to find 10 or 12 for an album. And she is a tough judge by the sound <laughs> of it. Um, well, let's get into the first of it. I, 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 uh, I'm so glad that you steered me towards talking about the second half because I got so into the minutia of this first half because she drops so many names. She worked with everybody. She toured with Clyde McFadder, Benny King, Barbara Lynn, Otis Redding. She knew all the Motown people. She was mixed up with a lot of the Motown people. That's right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, and she, she, the, the, what the man she thought was the love of her life was Clarence Paul, who mm -hmm. is Stevie Wonder's uncle. Now, was he his real uncle or not? I can't remember. But the important thing is he's the guy who, you know, kind of mentored Stevie early on, was his early songwriter. And according to Betty, Clarence Paul fell out with Barry Gordy when he went home with Barry's yeah. then ex-wife, <laughs> Ray. Um, and, and, you know, she was a very important figure in Motown. And early on and by the time Barry yeah and uh and by the time Barry Gordy got home they're both drunk and naked although they claim nothing went on but uh according to Clarence Paul per Betty LeVette that was it and she didn't realize that she kept trying to use Clarence Paul as her in with Motown for years and it didn't work but first we should talk about how it was that she puts out a top 10 R&B hit on Atlantic at 16 and then ends up not on Atlantic in a very short period of time. What was your take on that whole sequence? Oh boy. Well, it, it sounds like the sort of thing that, that happened to people a lot, uh, whether they continue moving up or, or not, that first brush with success is all, always a little shady, a little dark. <laughs> And it seems like uh, Johnny Mae Matthews, who I, I wasn't aware of before this, but apparently she was, uh, they call her the godmother of Detroit soul. And yep. uh, she was somebody who discovered all these people, including uh, um, uh, Otis Williams in the distance, who's with the Temptations, David Ruffin, uh, a lot of uh, singers who would be associated with Detroit first got their start with, with Johnny Mae Matthews. And uh, it sounds pretty rough. Their yeah. <laughs> royalties were pretty much out of the question uh, yeah. with, uh, with Johnny Mae. And, uh, and uh, the, the threat of violence was there, but she had connections. She had a connection to, to Jerry Wexler and... This is this is how these things often get started, you know. These yeah, these... I mean, oh, sorry to jump in, but I want to. I should introduce that Betty was not born Betty Levette. She was born Betty Jo Haskins in Muskegon, Michigan, in 1946. Raised in Detroit, she met a singer named Ginger Levette and literally asked her for the name on first meeting, the Levette name, and got the green light. Although I don't know that uh, Ginger could have done anything to stop her, but 
Ginger yeah. introduces her to one of these guys, Timmy Shaw, who's one of these guys who's a wannabe player and also a wannabe pimp. And 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 Betty's very clear that that was a very gray line that both men and women in the music industry were pimping uh, in this period yeah. in one way or in multiple senses of the term. You've got people like Ted White, who was Aretha Franklin's husband, we've talked about, and also was a big time pimp. And Betty was friendly with Ted and Aretha and, and had a lot of insights to that, the nature of that relationship and other relationships. Although her attitudes, you have to say, are pretty retrograde. I mean, she's one of these, she just straight up and says, sometimes these women needed to be hit. <laughs> Which, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Betty, Betty definitely has uh, a, a a point of view that is is definitely informed. Uh, and you know, you know, there's part of me that that uh, backs away from that, and there's part of me that accepts that as her reality. Uh, because In the reality of that era. And, and the reality of the era, yeah, because it's so prevalent. Etta James said it too, and Etta, Etta James even said like Barry Gordy was right there with him. He was a, that's that's what is said. I mean, that yeah, if you watch one, there's one of those recent Barry Gordy and Smokey documentaries, Smokey Robinson, where they're pounding around together and just laughing and cackling about how many women they slept with, and, and clearly use their power to do that. I mean, if you especially Barry Gordy, if you look at him, you know, he's no taller than me. But let's hear our second song. This is Mickey Newberry's just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in, most famously done by Kenny Rogers in the first edition. Here's what Betty did with that song. Woke up this morning with the sun down shining in Found my mind in a brown paper bag within Tripped on a cloud bell eight miles high Told my mind on a jagged sky Hey, I dropped that was Betty Levent saying, just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. And she did that for Leland Rogers' label. And that comes out, it's reissued by Sun. Um, ends up that... Uh, Leland Rogers was financed by Shelby Singleton, who's the guy who bought Sun Records from Sam Phillips. So, so many of the connections from the show are, are coming together in this episode. And Shelby was riding high off the money from uh, Tom T. Hall's Harper Valley PTA, which had been recorded by Jenny C. Riley and just become this immense number one, I mean, a, a number one pop hit so big they made a movie about it 10 years later. So, um, and yet, once again, you know, Leland and Betty cut a whole bunch of great tracks with Charlie Freeman and Jim Dickinson, the, the kind of Jerry Wexler's dream band that he put together and took, to, or he took to Miami. He stole and took to Miami. <laughs> yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> a nice way of saying it, yeah. Yeah. And I, I should mention that this is one book in which Jerry Wexler isn't the villain <laughs> or is he? Because we don't know know why Atlantic didn't put out her record, but we do know that after she had one hit on Atlantic and then recorded a follow-up that stiffed and then had some management difficulties, 
that she walked out on Atlantic because she wanted to be produced by Lieber and Stoller, who had left to go out on their own with Redbird Records, and she refused Burt Backrack. <laughs> so, yeah, she sure did. Oh, I, I'm not sure if, if that pairing would have worked out anyway. I, it's hard to <laughs> imagine. It's really hard to imagine, but it could have been something special. But, um, but to Jerry's credit, Jerry Jerry uh, gave her some some walking money. Um, yeah, 500 bucks, and that was a lot of money in the early 60s. Yeah, yeah, that, course, you know, got to give it, it to... It was probably to, her royalties anyway. It might have been. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's hard to say. I mean, R&B hit, the top 10 R&B hit at that point in time wasn't making a ton of money. And we should mention, you know, when she asked for royalties on that, that she got throat slammed by Johnny May. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and told a no in certain terms not to do that. And then her management, she had partnered with Robert West, who I talked about extensively when I interviewed um, Tony Fletcher about Eddie Floyd. Robert West was Eddie Floyd's uncle, but he was also yeah. the guy who discovered him and Wilson Pickett and managed the Falcons and uh, very, very much a record man, very much a player. And, I, and he ends up partnering with Herman Griffin, who, and I'm going to do a Mary Wells episode soonish, um, but Mary Wells was the big star of Motown 64. She leaves Motown because of this guy sounds like an idiot. I mean, if you listen, read the stories about Herman Griffin, you know, trying to conduct the, the Funk Brothers band live on stage and 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 nonsense like that. And, and anyway, Griffin and West partner. Griffin takes Mary Wells away from Motown, signs her to 21st Century Fox partners up with Robert West, and it seems like this is going to be the Detroit combo that can really take on Barry Gordy. Problem was, those two got to drinking, got in a fight, and West ended up getting shot with his own gun um, and is and never really recovers. So Betty takes a deep hit when that, uh, when that happens. And that's when she meets Jim Lewis, who's trying to tell her, hey, girl, I can help you, you know, listen to me. And she doesn't, and she moves to New York on her own. And that's when she ends up falling to the clutches of Jay the Pimp. And uh, you know, she 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 has a good run though. I mean, she she has a top twenty R and B hit, I think, on Cala Records, produced by Dee uh, produced by Don Gardner of Dee Dee and Don fame. And and you know, all through this, I mean, she she recorded an unreleased single with Luther Dixon of Scepter Records. That's the guy who made the Shirelles, the record man behind the Shirelles. Uh, she meets Esther Phillips, who you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Who's all strung out. And that warns Betty off of the hard stuff. I, I found it fascinating the way Betty could party with the best of them, but pull back before she went over the abyss. I mean, she only took LSD once and recognized, oh, not for me. She stayed well away from heroin, and then she skips out on crack. Well, that's... I mean, it's... Uh, I, I, one thing I, I notice is that Betty grew up in an environment. She, she wasn't one of these people like a Marvin Gaye who grew up in an incredibly religious and incredibly um, uh, not very worldly environment, and then goes into secular the secular yeah, she world. Wasn't ever church, she was a vehement atheist. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> with the whole from the get and and stuck with it. Yeah, and her and her parents were you know bootleggers who you know all the 
all the the different uh, entertainers and various kinds of of uh, people, seedy and not, seem to seem to know them and and come through the house and come through the neighborhood. So. People like that, I'm from West Baltimore, so, you know, I, I haven't gotten into a lot of stuff either, but I've been around a lot of stuff. And I think if you grow up in a certain environment, uh, you might be a little wiser than somebody who's just seeing this stuff for the first time. Oh, that, that could well be, but we, we got a lot to cover because I want to cover yeah. the whole first arc of her career in the next five minutes. So, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the big heartbreaker, the album that broke her heart was when she got this opportunity to, to return to Atlantic. And this is the post Aretha Franklin Atlantic. And this is the Led Zeppelin uh, and Rolling Stones Atlantic. This is, you know, they're part of the Warner Brothers empire. They're huge. And this guy, Ollie McLaughlin, fight, is one of many A&R guys who, you know, fight for her to varying degrees of success. He managed, he tried and failed to get on Atlantic, then he succeeded. They cut a whole album with the Muscle Shoals Swampers uh, down in Muscle Shoals, got Brad Shapiro, who was red hot at the time producing it. She had this pianist that she met, Rudy Robinson, who stuck with her through thick and thin, that she, you know, swear, he was one of the few killer musicians, I'm not few, but one of probably quite a few top-notch musicians who never got to work with the Funk Brothers in the Motown studio. I mean, there was plenty of talent on the keys, uh, you know. Earl Van Dyke and folks like that, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, Rudy was surplus. And I don't even know if he applied. It seemed like Rudy was also a lush. And and uh, But he, you know, he's playing on this. He does this incredible arrangement. Of, Art of, of Neil Young's Heart of Gold that what would have been on that album that you, which is now released and you can get it. It's a great it, album. Yeah, it's an incredible album. And and she gets a single put out. She's got her plane tickets for the tour. When she gets this call out of the blue, send us the tickets back, tour's canceled. Never found out why. Never found out why. Um, and she had already gone crawling back to Detroit after the, the pimp experience in New York. And this Jim Lewis cat, you know, took her in and really educated her or made her educate herself about all the great jazz singers. She was a little older, so he really knew the jazz, the jazz stuff and really had her pay attention and learn that craft and and really drilled it into our head. Keep listening, keep growing. And it absolutely worked. Then she got on a deal with Epic Records, produced by Ron Dunbar. She records Killer Version of Behind Closed Doors, the Charlie Rich uh, hit, and dropped again. Then she has a brief disco hit. She's on West End Records for like 15 minutes. Corey Robbins, who... You know, pretty legendary disco producer was only 19 at the time. He cuts doing the best that I can on her. Actually, he already had it cut. All she had to do was come in and drop the vocals in. Walter Gibbons, the legendary, you know, pioneer of the 12 inch remix, did a remix on it that is one of the disco classics. Um, this ties in so much with our techno roll series, but yeah. she quits West End Records because she thought she was going to get a deal with Steve Buckingham and Arnie Geller, who were you know, hot off I Love the Nightlife by Lisa Bridges. Her songs never come out. Then she does this weird six-year run on Broadway with Bubbly and Brown Sugar. She's working with Cab Calloway. So that's pretty, you know, again, quite an item for your resume. Then she finally gets on Motown in 1980 with uh, and puts out the Tell Me a Lie album. But Stephanie's telling me, time for a sponsor break. When we come back, we'll talk about how Betty rose from the ashes and triumphed. 
So after all that hard work, all those tours, all that recording, all that working with, I mean, the best musicians in the business, the best producers in the business, and she's touring with the best acts in the business and more than holding her own. And nothing comes of it for her. So by the late 80s, she's playing piano bar gigs with, with her faithful man, Rudy, on piano. She's playing a club on the Wayne Street campus called The Library. And then, um, you know, as at the absolute ebb of her fortunes, when she meets another man, Robert Hodge, who's just like a, a, a dude who'd made a lot of money in tech. Or not a lot of money, but, you know, made a nice living in tech. I, I, maybe he was rich. I don't know. She doesn't really say. She just <laughs> yeah. describes him as tech. He's got enough money, though, to become her manager. And she calls him the man who basically got me through the 90s. And once again, it's a sexual love relationship with strings attached. But, you know, they stayed friends to the end, even when she she left him for a, a producer at the first opportunity <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then married another man. But, uh, you know, she she and she kind of had this this mentor figure who was sort of a party girl and and uh that that was going to deflower stevie wonder but didn't show up but um (laughs) right right that that, that woman gets two whole chapters i think um but yeah what what was your take on that and that her name was mary early and she was apparently very early yeah mary early and often (laughs) (laughs) for for sure i think it is so fascinating, just like the the uh, the the approach to sexual behavior <laughs> among uh, these uh, Detroit folks. I mean, you know, it it I guess shouldn't be that shocking, but just it's it's just so casually transactional that uh, um, it, it it's. It makes you really reconfigure everything you sort of thought, and I, you know, I just keep going back to to Motown and <laughs> and uh, you know women that might have been in precarious situations there, uh, but yeah, um, or who used uh, it to get all the way to the top, like Diana Ross, who was obviously very very talented, but, but had Barry Gordy's baby. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But uh, Mary, Mary Early uh, seems to be like uh, uh, someone who was not too much of a performer, more, more of like um, uh, a fashion person, things like that. Is, yeah, is, is that right? And yeah, I mean, model, groupie, scene yeah. maker. She's one of these beautiful women who was so cool and socially powerful that she just moved you know through these scenes at at a pretty high level and um you know this was the free love era era and mary early was you know way out in front and inspired betty levette but we should get back to our story because because um there's a lot to it and and you know one of these phenomena another phenomenon that ties in with the techno techno role series i did with ryan hartness um and hopefully we'll continue at some point when Ryan's gets freed up again, but is this phenomenon of Northern soul, which is this totally bizarre phenomenon where British fans, you know, the mods basically in Northern England who didn't want to get into psychedelia or soft rock or hard rock, they wanted to stick with the Motown and the stacks that they loved. 
And they did that. And they made it, instead of having disco all through the 70s, they had this massive dance club scene all over the north of England, obsessed with obscure American R&B 45s from the 60s, mostly from the north. They call it Northern Soul in part because they were in the north of England, Manchester, Leeds, et cetera, but also because they were fascinated with Detroit soul, Chicago soul, New York soul, DC. I mean, and they weren't against Memphis or New Orleans or whatever, but they really loved that stuff that was, uh, and some of their biggest ones were on Motown, but kind of Motown adjacent would be, mm-hmm. like Betty, Betty describes it as they love the funkier side of Motown, the more obscure, the better since no one was more obscure than I was, which isn't true, but I can see why she would say that. I became a Northern Soul sweetheart. And so multiple, and this becomes a massive scene and this is, ends up playing a big role in the Acid House explosion. A ton of people who grew up in the Northern Soul scene as DJs uh, and dancers became big wheels in the Acid House scene later on. Uh, and there were tons of writers, you know, they did that the way the English do. They were very scholarly and very passionate so people like David Godin of Blues and Soul magazine and David Nathan, another uh, major music writer, they championed her and told her tale so that when she finally gets to go to England in the late 90s, uh, she's met at the, you know, people asking for her autograph on the tarmac. And, and uh, she uh, ends up working with this guy, Ian Levine, who is a big player in techno role. He's a big part of the Northern Soul story and then a big part of the high energy uh, story with high energy was kind of the post disco dance music that came out of San Francisco, London, and New York, and was devastated by AIDS. A big, very gay music scene. Uh, and Ian Levine was a DJ at Heaven, the big, big London gay disco, and he decided he's going to resurrect Motown Records. Comes to uh, had inherited some money, comes to Detroit in the late eighties founds Motor City Records and says, I'm going to pick up where uh, Barry Gordy, you know, Barry, Barry closed down the party. Well, I'm starting it up all over again. And and as Betty said, he gathered up the leftovers. I mean, everybody, Marv Johnson, Kim Weston, Dennis Edwards, Eddie Kendricks, Bobby Taylor, Brenda Holloway, the Contours, the Four Tops, the Marvelettes, the Velvets, uh, the Supremes minus Diana Ross. And, and because Betty had done an album and Ian loved her, he included her and she bitches that several of the Motown people said she shouldn't have been there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'd like to know who the Motown singer, the, what she describes as the morbidly obese uh, Motown singer who, who uh, overweight crackhead is actually what she called the woman who got physically stuck between two buildings. Cause she went in that little alley to buy some crack. I mean, yeah. I don't, funny, I don't know who, but, yeah, I don't know who it was, but I I would be willing to bet that there's no loss between that person and Betty. <laughs> no, no love loss there. And and you know, if you listen to those records, Levine basically did high energy backing. She called them modern disco beats, but it was more that '80s style that became you know the pop style of Britain in the mid and late '80s. Those albums didn't go anywhere, but Ian paid everybody, and and that did help build her in England. Um, she, you know, did the Northern Soul Weekender in Cleethorpes, UK. I can only imagine how badly I'm mispronouncing that. That's in North Northeast England. But yeah, fans were on the tarmac waiting for her. And she also talks about the deaths of David Ruffin and Eddie Kendricks from crack. And those she wasn't laughing about. She was crying about that. She knew those guys, you know, David Ruffin in particular, uh, she knew 
from the get. And one of the great loss, and he achieved so much with the Temptations, lead vocals to the Temptations in their peak era. But then he, you know, never, never became Marvin Gaye or Stevie Wonder, died quite young in the 90s. Um, you know, but she's sticking it out. She's uh, working in local politics. She's active in the H. Ross Perot campaign. She's um, hosting local cable shows. She, you know, keeps it together. She's got a strong family. That's another thing that helped her survive this was there was always mama to go back to and, um, and, and sisters and others. And then, um, you know, once again, gets this call out of the blue from Randall Grass of Shanachi. Do you know how to say that one? Shanachi? Shanachi? I, I, yeah, that's us trying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so apologies. Probably a Native yeah. American word, maybe. But anyway, he yeah. calls her up and says, I can't sign you, but I love you. And he promises to get her a booking agency, a record deal, or a gig. And manages to do it. He ends up introducing her to Dennis Walker, who was hot at the time from being Robert Cray's co-writer and producer. And they they finally make, I guess she'd made one album already on Motown, but they make A Woman Like Me, which, again, the record label will do dies before the thing comes out. And Dennis Walker, whom she left her longtime love for, uh, gets busted in some kind of drugs nonsense and is headed, headed down the river. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so it, it it came out, I guess, a year or two late. And it was her final work with Rudy Robinson. I found that kind of poignant that Rudy passes away right before the Golden Age starts. Yeah, he kind of sends her off, which is yep. which, it, it's sad, but it's but it's also beautiful at, at the at the same time. That that album, A Woman Like Me, which the book is named after. It's a really, really strong album, and it's and it's uh, very uh, much steeped in like I guess what the blues scene because I think Etta James talked about this in her autobiography how how so much is encapsulated these days by the blue by this term the blues, um, but it I think it is uh, really emblematic of what the blues scene has been maybe since you know the uh malico came along and since you know dennis walker was doing his thing with uh with robert cray and i think it's it's among the best examples of of that sound she considers it r&b which i would probably agree with I, I think that's very accurate i mean this is a scene where like you know austin texas his own fa- fly, uh, fabulous thunderbirds were always marketed as this blues revival band, but but I knew about Stax because of the Blues Blues Brothers, and as soon as I saw them, I was like, these guys are trying to be Stax, you know? Yeah. And, and which to me isn't the blues; it's soul. But that's you know, hair splitting, whatever. There was this scene, and they took Betty in, and yeah, it's a strong album. I'm very allergic to that production style, so it really, I had to get over that. And, and, yeah, I understand. <laughs> give, give that album several listens, but yeah, it's it's strong stuff, and it set her up um, for this run that is so unlikely. But it's time to cue. We're going to go back to the disco era, and here's Betty uh, doing the best that I can. Remix by Walter Gibbons.
And that was Doing the Best That I Can by Betty LeVette from the late 70s on West End Records, which, like I said, she walked away from right away. And I kind of think if Betty had stayed there and been a mid-level disco queen, she would not have become the Betty LeVette that she became. No, no. I feel like she she had to get to this place. Uh, I think uh, the opportunities that we're about to talk about created the Betty LeVette that everybody knows today. You know, well, clearly everything did, but but yeah. um, but there are lots of these uh, disco queens that that are out there, and you know, God bless them. But there's there's a ton of them. Uh, Chic, just one band, just like ran through singers. Yeah. Um, so uh, that that could have been Betty, but. Betty just um, uh, even if she got a got bad breaks uh, when she when her big break finally came along, it fit her really well. Yeah, yeah, it, it worked for her. And and you know um, the guy from Shinachi Records managed to hook her up with uh, another dude, Mike Kappas of the Rosebud Agency. Um, Dennis Walker was involved in that connection too. And Kappas was somebody who was like, look, I love your stuff. I love your work, but you don't have a big management team. You know, this is a big agency. We just can't do it. I'm so sorry. Then she gets a lucky break and she gets to sing for a birthday party for a Mill Valley that's north of San Francisco for a record store owner. And Kappas sees that, sees her live. And that changed his mind. And from there on, she's golden. Like she, Rosebud is a serious agency. Betty can deliver the goods because, like I said, she has stayed in shape. She has stayed in voice. And she has grown as an artist and is constantly growing as an artist. And they, they can easily put her to work. And now she's working constantly and doing the major festivals uh, on, on these blues bills with, like, Etta James and Bobby Bland. Now, Bobby Bland is also kind of a weird variant of blues he's that memphis blues style came up with bb king mm-hmm. um, and uh and johnny ace the late great johnny ace and and so the memphis style blues from the era, era is a little different from the chicago style blues much more connected to what was going on in the r&b scene at the time and Absolutely. um and then she gets another angel this guy frederick wilhelms the third is this lawyer who volunteers and tracks down her old royalties, which I imagine took some doing, you know, uh, and and maybe he even got the some royalties out of Atlantic, you know. By that time, Jerry Wexler was no longer on the scene, and you're just dealing with the Warner Brothers, um, you know, bureaucracy. It might have been Time Warner by that point, and uh, you know, so money money coming from the past, money coming from live gigs, and then she gets this opportunity with Anti, and I'd never heard of this label before. Uh, reading the book and now where is the dude's name uh, andrew calkin is the head of it and there's some other records you know she talked to Ry Cooter for a while but he was super expensive and nobody wanted to, to put that kind of money into her but auntie's one of these independent labels that had figured out how to make it work around the turn of the millennium and he's thinking big he's thinking albums he's thinking conceptually and that leads to her probably I mean, it's hard to say, but her most well-received work, and it's high-quality work. I've got my own Hell to Raise, produced by Joe Henry, and then the scene of the crime uh, 
co-produced and and backed by the drive-by truckers, which not a combination I saw coming. But when you think about it, you know Patterson's Hood Hood's dad David right. was the Swampers, and so you know uh, very you know perfect fit. And the first album, the concept was songs by women. Betty didn't like that idea, <laughs> but they <laughs> they persisted, and because her husband Kevin was just this natural amateur a and r man who who you know picked most of the tracks and and they she felt like she had done r&b she had made her r&b statement on the previous album and so they're doing a lot of country stuff and a lot of folky stuff joan Armatrading, amy mann uh sinead o'connor i thought that was you know mixed with some dolly parton bobby kreiner um gets to play david letterman you know she's getting the wc handy award uh things are good for betty i really enjoyed this part of the book yes so did i so did i i i do think uh so the those lost recordings that she made in you know that That was a big part of it yeah the the souvenirs came out which was uh the child of the 70s album which was believed to have been burned up in a fire yeah betty found a copy of it in her attic and played it for some people, and and including um, uh, I got a book coming notes, but a French uh, record label um, put that album out as souvenirs, and she ended up having a live album come out in Europe in that same year, and that was a key part of her comeback. Um, she did a Let Me Down Easy in concert, her first live album that was on Munich Records, came out in two thousand. And then um, Art and Soul Records was what put out Souvenirs. And yeah, a guy named, and I am apologize, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing this, but Guy Pittard, uh, that can't be the pronunciation of that, but so my apologies. Uh, but he, you know, he tracked down the master tape in the Atlanta archives and is able to put it out. And that started getting her in magazines and that set her up, um, you know, for more stuff. And, and the way she met her husband, the guy caught, what did he email her? emailed her out of the blue cold email yeah this out, is like with john tiffin <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is this is uh maybe the first time that uh the internet plays a role <laughs> in, in, in success anyway but you know um there is so so that that northern soul scene um really really blossomed and like the internet was, it just became very early on the place for music heads. Yeah. And um, there's lots of uh, of soul websites that are still around today. I wish I could rent, like Soul Walking is one of them, but there's a bunch of them um, that that are really crucial in holding up to the light. Lots of these folks like like Betty Levette. Who who were and and are still out there doing it? But I wanted to to say that um, uh, those those albums that didn't come out in the '70s that are are those classic '60s '70s sounding um, uh, things that would have come out in Atlantic things that were recorded Muscle Shoals and things like that. Those are great. And and they're they very much get you to understand, okay, this is why this is how you can see her as right along there with 
an Aretha Franklin or, or you know, even a, a Tina Turner uh, or, or somebody like that. However, these albums that, that she put out uh, as the early part of the millennium are so unique. Uh, Aretha's not putting out, I've got my own hell to race. She's just not, she's, she's not gonna, gonna cover Lucinda Williams and, and Fiona Apple and uh, for, for, for someone like Betty to do that and do that in just as good as good of a voice, if not better than, than she had ever been. And combine it with this uh, really gritty sound that Joe Henry had found, that the that then the drive-by truckers uh, had found, um, is really quite remarkable. And she had already uh, displayed uh, really great talent for uh, interpreting all kinds of songs, uh, particularly you know songs written by you know these rock and roll guys like Heart of Gold, Neil Young. Uh, also in Child of the 70s is It Ain't Easy, uh, um, David Bowie. Um, but she comes back uh, to doing that again on uh, I've Got My Own Hell to Raise. And you listen to a song like Joy, and it, it, it's hard to even remember that Lucinda Williams ever did that song. It, it sounds like a Betty Lovett song. Yes, she took a while. I don't think that was a David Bowie song. That was the uh, um, Three Dog Night is who that was. I could have swore it was. I thought it was. Betty, on, David, uh, David Bowie has a song called It Ain't Easy, um, but it's, that's not it. And, that, well, and I it only is. knew that because it came out a couple years later. I don't think so because that the I, I just Googled it. That's it's the Three Dog Night in 1970. But maybe. Oh, check it out. Check it out. I think it's from uh, Ziggy Stardust. No, no, that's there is a song <laughs> called It's Not Easy on Ziggy Stardust, but it's not It Ain't Easy. That's on um Three Dog Night's first album, March 31st, 1970. Okay. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> us internet music heads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you gotta, you know, because I'll be getting um, people will be calling me. But we gotta tell the story of the Kennedy Center. Yeah. So her husband got word. Oh, Steph tells me we got a cue, and this is a great song. This is the the revenge happy ending song. Um, this is before the money came in, the Battle of Betty Lavette. This is Betty with the drive by truckers. And that was Before the Money Came, The Battle of Betty Levette with the Drive-By Truckers, co-written by Pat and Hood. Um, and yeah, to the, the story Betty Levette, she tells her own story brilliantly, powerfully. These are really good albums. This I, I'm usually very snobbish about, I only want the prime work, I only want the vintage production styles. And this stuff, there was a lot of cool stuff going on in the 2000s. It was a time when you could, you know, the the 
internet's gobbling up the music industry. But if you were if you were going for that sweet spot, critical respect, moderate sales, good right. live touring, you could make a good living and do some really quality stuff that really built your audience. But this Kennedy Center deal, her husband gets word that George Jones, the great country singer, is going to get a uh, nominate, get an award at the Kennedy Center, and she he's pushing for Betty to get to sing. A George Jones song, but of course everybody wants to sing a George Jones song. And so the people there, though, they love her version of Little Sparrow by Dolly Parton, but they they don't have anybody to sing the Who, a Who song. And because uh, the, the Who are going to get Kennedy Center awards, which I don't quite understand. I mean, they're great work and everything, but I didn't know British people could get it. But anyway, Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey, <laughs> there, and she gets to sing "Love Rain Over Me," which is. The perfect pick from the Who's discography. That's one of those. That's like when Metallica had to cover Queen for some, had to cover an Electra artist and couldn't figure out who and figure, settle on oh, Queen finally. Stone Cold um, Crazy, yeah. Yeah, Stone Cold Crazy. And, you know, Love Rain Over Me is the perfect one. And Aretha Franklin's there. Barbara Streisand's there. Beyonce's there. Pete Townsend cries while she's singing. It's a really powerful video to watch. She's And he's sitting right next to Barbara Streisand, I think. I, I didn't see Aretha in the footage, but she was there. Betty knew it. And Roger Daltrey comes in, bows, or kneels before her like she's a queen backstage after that performance. And, and Betty said, this is as close to heaven as I'll come. And then she gets to sing at the, the Obama inaugural with John Bon Jovi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's boy, that's 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 yeah. our times. <laughs> that is, that really sums up the Obama era, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but let's not take uh, let that take off Betty Shine because that was a glorious moment in our country and our culture. No, Maybe no. it was a it was a delusional thing, but people loved Obama. I loved Obama. We were so excited. And oh, it it, it was monumental. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, Betty's right in the thick of it, getting her just rewards at last. So it's, it's you know, and if you look at her discography, if you, if, and, and I, I've only spent a little bit of time tracking down those old singles, which thanks to the internet, it's remarkably easy. But between all the stuff she recorded in the 60s that was released and unreleased, and on the itty bitty labels, the stuff she did in the late 60s, early 70s on Atlantic and Epic, then the disco song. It would have been interesting if she'd done a whole disco album, but she did do that whole Motown album in the Rick James era. And then this this late run, you know, everything um, everything from 2000 on, pretty much. Uh, it's it's She's got a body of work that compares with her contemporaries. I mean, I think, I think the gods have said, Betty, you are the equal of... I don't. I'm not going to put it up there with Edda and Aretha, but right. Well, I mean, she could hang with them on any given night, I'm sure. But I, I think, I think the thing is that she is so herself. Just, just like, just yep. like those two, she, she especially now is so u- unique in. Um, her voice and in her phrasing um, and, and unlike them, she's doing the most unique work of her career, like right, right now. And, you know, yeah. uh, 
I've got my own hell to raise and the scene of the crime are great. But then, you know, she's she has continued to put out albums like uh, Worthy is a really good one. There's a, another one um, that is all Dylan covers. Uh, yeah. And she just really she really owns this stuff. Um, yes. I think it's really, really cool that in an era when there were she wasn't the only soul singer that was you know uh spent you know a, a long time uh not having the light shown on on her as much and then get into the spotlight in the 2000s there was a whole soul revival that to some extent is uh is still going on and i guess like amy winehouse was like emblematic of that but you know, Dap, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings were going on, and Lee Fields and and Charles Bradley, and and all that stuff was really cool, and I really love all that stuff. But what she was putting out, and you know, she's sort of a part of the same sort of reclamation project Betty was, but with her reclamation project, the music is unique and you wouldn't have heard anything like that back in the 60s or 70s nothing against you know any of that other stuff that was that was and is coming out now and i think the key is this jim lewis influence that he taught her to to immerse herself in an older tradition which was the old interpretive singer tradition that we think of with ella fitzgerald and frank sinatra and that whole school of thought where a great singer can sing anything and make it their own. And that's something that I think a lot of her contemporaries, that was not something that was part of the 60s soul tradition. I mean, obviously they interpreted songs, but this idea of the interpretive singer as the star, you know, they, they would, you know, somebody like Edda or like when Aretha Franklin covers Otis Redding, she just owns respect. She doesn't necessarily that was just this unique collision. So it could be really challenging to find material for somebody like Etta or Aretha. And, and I think it's why they didn't have, you know, a Sarah Vaughn style late career or whatever, but Betty did. And I think it's because she was ready for that. She was raised in that interpretive school. And yeah, the, uh, the Amy Winehouse angle, I hadn't thought of it. Yeah. You had them all over the place, Nora Jones. And I mean, just that, that was very much an era that appreciated this. It's kind of like the analogous to the blues revival in the sixties. And yeah. she's kind of like the Mississippi John Hurt or whatever, you know, unearthed in Avalon, Mississippi by some blues heads, um, you know, and, and I think it was Slim House that had to be taught how to play his songs again. But Betty yeah. was not like oh, yeah. that. She, she had stayed focused and was ready to go. And she seized her opportunity and, and had a happy ending, which is this the first in our series? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think, you know, I think the Aretha one's a happy ending. I mean, Etta James staying alive was a happy ending. And certainly Jerry Wexler had a happy ending. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we don't know what happened to Jerry after um, he passed. True. But uh, now I'm not going to judge Jerry Wexler. But I would love to know if he was the one who uh, pulled the trap door out from under her. Because it would just be it would be just like him to remember that sassy punk girl that walked away from Atlantic at, she was 17 or 18 at the time. 
you know, I could easily see Wexler pulling the trapdoor on that, but I could also easily see it just happening through corporate indifference and some bean counter down in the basement saying, you guys are, I mean, although Atlantic at that time, they weren't bean counting. I mean, you know, I did a whole show on the Warner Brothers in that era and they, they had their latitude. So anyhow, it's, um, it's hard to say. Yeah, it's hard to say, but it's been a treat, Brooks. The book is Betty Levette, A Woman Like Me, co-written by David Ritz. And Brooks and I are going to continue our David Ritz book club with the Neville Brothers next time. Yeah, looking forward to that. Indeed. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.